Welcome to this week's edition of the Contact Centre podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Mitchell, and I'm the Features Editor here at Call Centre Helper. In this episode, we'll be looking at the topic of improving your quality programme with Martin Teasdale, the host of fellow Contact Centre podcast, Get Out of Rap. While Martin has over 20 years' experience in multiple contact centre roles, he is a specialist in creating effective quality frameworks, which is the main focus of our conversation. Are customers involved in identifying the key measures of the performance being evaluated? Because I think it's fair to say that there is a large percentage of scorecards that have been developed organically over time. Those are often added to with new services, maybe new regulations, another line item is added, but very rarely are they reviewed holistically at that time. Our CSAT it tells us one thing, but our internal quality score tells us another. Why is there this difference? If you don't have calibrations as part of your QA framework, the addition of them can be really positively transformative. This episode of the Contact Center podcast is sponsored by Genesis. Genesis is the global leader in omni-channel customer experience and contact center solutions. More than 11,000 companies in over 100 countries trust the Genesis customer experience platform to help them connect effortlessly with consumers, across any channel, voice, text, web chat, and social. If you would like to see a demonstration of the Genesis Pure Cloud Contact Center platform, visit callcenterhelper.com forward slash demo. Some contact centers just use quality as a means of measuring performance, but what other benefits uh, do you think good QA can bring to the contact center? There's so many. I think we use a phrase called the sphere of influence. There isn't a better placed function within the contact center to be able to have a real positive influence across so many other different functions, whether that is training, product, the more standard and traditional ones that you'd expect QA to interact with, like the kind of compliance and regulatory element. But if you can get your QA right, You know, the ability to evaluate and provide actionable insight into how the business is performing, the challenges customers are facing, the opportunities to identify process improvement and enhance processes. You've also got, like I say, the kind of more traditional mitigation of regulatory and business risk, identification of core contact drivers. So that's something that that sort of vocab is more and more popular these days about what are the customer contact drivers, what are the customer outcomes. And, of course, the other thing is around employee performance. If you can get your QA right, you know, more enlightened organizations are recognizing and realizing the potential through marrying the right QA team with the right technology and processes And the benefits are are, are massive. So through customer experience to employee engagement. You know, we all all like being told when we're doing something right. This isn't necessarily always about areas for improvement. You know, QA can catch people doing, doing things right, highlighting and celebrating best practice. And 
bringing the QA team to the fore to enhance employee engagement. I think there's nothing more dangerous in a any business, but specifically in a contact center, than a, a consequence-free environment. But so those kind of people that are doing a good job and doing well day in, day out, contact after contact, QA is your vehicle to be in order to kind of really praise those people and give them great motivation. You know, so good QA within the contact center world can be a superpower and it's probably underutilized at the moment. One of the things that we'll see is people will go, right, how do we, how can we really see how a service is being received by our customers? Let's engage with maybe an external company or look at a way of capturing customer satisfaction metrics, all of which have their place, but often they will walk straight past the team that has more experience dealing with those contacts day in, day out, both from the frontline team member point of view, but also from the customer's point of view, how that service is being received. So if you can really tap into that, you can make a huge difference through getting QA right. Absolutely. Uh, One particularly interesting point that you made there was that quality can be a great motivator for advisors. How can we use our quality scorecards to increase contact center motivation? Using QA through getting a scorecard really well set up is a great motivator because you can catch people doing something right at the right time and then use that to share best practice to help train new starters in being able to deal with certain parts of the customer journey. So in that sense, it's invaluable. I think kind of as uh, you were talking there earlier about kind of the importance of uh, using the scorecard, how do you think we can ensure that quality scorecards are measuring what's most important to our customers? It's a good question. and I think the key part of that is what processes you've developed to identify what is important to your customers. So are customers involved in identifying the key measures of the performance being evaluated? Because I think it's fair to say that there is a large percentage of scorecards that have been developed organically over time, and maybe they were given to somebody way back in the distance to develop as a task and with the right intentions and right for the moment they built a scorecard those are often added to with new services maybe new regulations another line item is added but very rarely are they reviewed holistically at that time they kind of grow arms and legs without maybe looking at how do these still align with what we are trying to achieve for our customers. Does the scorecard drive performance that's in line with our company values and strategy? What is it telling our team to do holistically? So having some kind of regular cadence about reviews is is critically important. Because when you think about it, scorecards and the measurement systems have been developed over time how often does that involve factoring in what customers perceive good quality to look like? Because we can, the danger is that we all fixate with the output, with what's the score? Oh, great, it's over whatever line we've set as the target, everything must be good. 
but maybe we're not delivering against what customers want from us at that particular time. So we would always suggest you kind of factor in whether that's through customer satisfaction metrics or maybe you have customer focus groups or you can utilize social media to input into the scorecard development a view from the customer in terms of what are the key things you expect to receive during your interaction with the business and how can the scorecard consistently help people deliver that yeah i think it's interesting there when you kind of bring in uh, csat as well because one technique that i've uh, heard of improving scorecards effectiveness is to kind of just put on a graph kind of the csat of a contact against the quality score of a contact and just put those onto um, a graph and just finding correlation and that will help you to tell you whether you're measuring what's important to your customers or not. Because as you say, a lot of these scorecards were created a long time ago. And I've even heard of uh, call centers using kind of the same scorecards on different channels. So that's an issue that people don't foresee. Is Have you see, ever seen a contact center doing that? Well, one of the things I think we've seen that for sure, also see people questioning our CSAT it tells us one thing, but our internal quality score tells us another. Why is there this difference? Yeah. And then when you actually look at who's being asked, when, and critically what they are being asked. So if there's no correlation between your line items in your scorecard and the questions that a customer is receiving at a certain point in their journey – it's actually going to be more surprising if there is a correlation, not if there, not if there isn't. So this kind of aligning of scorecards with customer satisfaction metrics, we would suggest is definitely best practice. Yeah, I think another thing that uh, many contact centers kind of struggle with, not just kind of aligning satisfaction metrics and quality scores and getting that balanced right, is finding the right uh, contacts to pick for quality assessment. Do you have any kind of tips to help do this? Yeah, I think common question, common challenge. I think flexibility is key. So regardless of your setup, you know you have, whether it's humans, combination of humans with technology, you know you have a set number that you're able to monitor. And then how you determine you use that in terms of what are the most valuable contacts. I mean, even that in itself is a is an interesting question that I think you, people need to address first of all is what does constitute a valuable contact? You can use technology, human intervention to identify trends, drivers, red flags, compliant risks, etc. But it's also really important to identify and promote positive contacts and behaviors. And what I mean by that is with your resource, you know you can monitor a set amount and if you are just repeating that over and over again and that resource is purely dedicated to monitoring a set number of contacts against a set number of frontline team members per month, whether it's four per team member per month, and you just repeat that ad infinitum without any variety, the question, are you really getting the most out of your QA function? Because some of those contacts that are being monitored taken away from the kind of more standard set number per agent per month 
but used to maybe look at some outliers to follow some kind of risk-based verification may provide really, really valuable information by which you can then make some really significant improvement. So from a tactical point of view, I'd always recommend you kind of, you've got your standard monitoring that is doing everything you want it to do from mitigating risk, driving coaching performance, but always try and keep some element aside that you can go away and investigate. So maybe you're thinking of changing your service or launching a new service. Use those contacts to go and figure out how they might be perceived. The other benefit to this, of course, is it energizes your QA team because they feel like they can really make a difference by you saying, right, 10 to 20% of the monitoring this month we're going to use to do some real tactical stuff. Maybe we're going to focus on new starter populations. And based on what we find, we're going to add that into not only our induction, but possibly even our recruitment process. So you'll be ironing out some of the common kinks that people always go through when they're new, but also making some real significant change through the contact center that's going to have a long-lasting impact. And that's purely through starting to think about how you use your resource and over and above the production of monitoring to produce a score, you know, to do some really significant coaching, but also to identify things that are going to have benefits for your customers as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, that you talked a bit about the experience of the quality analyst there, because we often kind of just focus on the advisor on these things, but kind of hearing how we can mix things up for the quality analysts to make sure they're fully engaged and ready to do their job at their best level is an interesting angle that we don't really talk much about. And I think one of the things that we do like to involve analysts in is quality uh, calibration sessions. Do you have any kind of tips to running good quality calibration sessions? First of all, if you don't have calibrations as part of your QA framework, the addition of them can be really positively transformative for so many reasons. One of those you just mentioned there about for the QA team itself. First and foremost, I think there's the distinction between a joint listening session and a calibration session. So both have merits, but a a, a calibration session would be one that we would suggest you define from the outset and you document it. So you're following a defined and documented process that you are practicing exam conditions. So participants blind score prior to the session itself So there's no conferring or critically no chance to be influenced. Because again, if you are all just being influenced and follow who the most dominant person is in their view, what's the point of doing the the session? So that's a really key one. Invite different stakeholders to routinely calibrate as well. And if you can, we'd encourage that to be senior leaders as well, at least on a, a quarterly basis. You've got to consider your contact selection. So you need to include a mix of contact types, lengths, and complexity for the broadest view possible of of your world. Also, don't be scared of the more contentious or gray issue areas. Calibrations are a really, really good way. That should be your think tank 
to be able to give people a steer and to throw into the mix areas where you've got conflicting views to help you manage that process it's important to assign a calibration owner to run the session and for other participants to calibrate against someone needs to be the kind of point of truth and that can move around the group but it's best practice to have somebody to say we're going to calibrate against this person's view one of the things that you would need to do as well, I think, is implement a kind of defined and tracked escalation process for disputes. So maybe there are some things that can't be dealt with within the session, but you want to track them and and use them going forward. You know, because calibrations can gain, enable you to gain consensus on the on the best approach to operational change. So to come back to one of the points around the QA team, and often overlooked group of experts who perhaps again when you're thinking of making a change you can use a calibration session it doesn't necessarily need to have been something that's already happened but the calibration session could be a good place to discuss and agree on the best approach to for future changes both for the QA team itself and perhaps for the wider business there should be consideration as to whether calibration scores themselves are used as a business or personal KPI. Because I think from a operational point of view, I would like to know that the QA function is highly calibrated. So I think if QA teams can really get a good calibration process in place and be brave and transparent, then reporting their own calibration performance as a as a kpi is a really good way to engender trust and credibility of the team that's a really interesting point on kind of using calibration as its own kpi how would you go about measuring that so it can be as simple as an overall how calibrated are we using the scorecard for example so okay you can take specific parts of the scorecard or you can take specific Predominantly, it's reported as a percentage um, in our, in my experience, our experience, where we say, okay, the team is calibrated at 90 plus percent, same way that people think about quality scores. Again, danger is that you just look at the number and you don't look at the, the data and the detail behind it, but predominantly through a percentage. Yeah, it's because we do know there's a lot of sub objective uh, criteria on any quality scorecard so I think the idea there of also having a leader to go alongside of that to kind of judge over any potential disputes is a is a very uh, key factor specifically over those kind of gray areas that uh, you've talked about with gray areas people will often go okay well where where do we land when there's multiple possible acceptable outcomes and i think this is where holistically you can come back to who are you trying to be as a company what are your values and how do you want this area received by your customers and if you question the gray areas against that more often than not it it kind of sways you to one way or the other Do you think that um, in these sessions as well, maybe advisors should be part of the calibration just to ensure so they know kind of what they're being measured on? Absolutely. Again, that kind of for all elements of the 
QA framework, one of the you, you need to dispel myths. You need to dispel people believe that QA is done in a certain way for certain reasons. By being transparent and involving most most contact centers will have different groups and committees, or maybe they can utilize their team leader population. But absolutely, the calibration, you should have some kind of cadence that involves representation from all levels that the QA framework affects or interacts with. And absolutely, that should include frontline team members, because whilst I think it's it's very common to say that a lot of QA teams are made up of previous frontline team members, that still doesn't mean that you should always just rely on on that fact. I think you always need to go and speak to people who are doing the job day in, day out, bring that into the calibration and allow them through a very organized structure to be able to help influence the best possible framework for employees to deliver against the company's strategy for the benefit of customers knowing all details knowing all data and a, you know a key that a key source of that are the people doing the job every single minute of the day hey, i think it also kind of goes back to your um, first point of using quality as a motivator and the only way we can do that is to be as transparent as possible with our advisors and one kind of interesting technique i picked up uh, on a recent site visit to the uh, das contact center was that they would not only just give advisors their quality scores, they would also send over the full scorecard with a recording so they could listen back and hear where they've been marked wrong and that would help them to actively kind of change their behaviours instead of just seeing the score, which I thought was very interesting. Is there anything else that you would recommend um, doing once you uh, have the quality data at the end of a quality monitoring session. I think that point you made then is a really good one that bears repeating. And even if people don't have the technology in order to share the the media um, file that's been monitored against, best practice would state that you timestamp and add as much commentary as possible to any of the learning points or scoring points that you want to share. I think kind of generalistic outcome or a pass fail metric doesn't enable people you know the i think the sole function the key function of any quality framework is to provide rich salient insightful data in order to effectively coach people to be better against transparently collectively agreed scorecards and metrics that match the company values you you can't do that with a general sorry you failed you know it's kind of if we if we are treating people as professionals as professionals you want to be best you can be at your job having qa and having clear points coachable insight and actionable points from a qa framework is is there's nothing more critical I like that idea of kind of the coachable points from the items of criteria on the quality monitoring scorecards, because uh, one of the big things you do with quality is to um, is to identify trends in agent performance. And if you can identify trends, you can then kind of see which kind of coaching that advisor needs based on the scorecard. Is that kind of, is that a key point, do you think? 
Yeah, I think any kind of any output from your QA function, any data really, data is your targeted enabler to maximize the benefit of coaching and development activity. You know, it's kind of it's things have come a long way, thankfully, in most cases, from QA being seen as this kind of punitive function. It's about taking think about how fast-paced contact centers are how many contacts people deal with how many interactions having a framework that enables you to take the really key parts of that to enable your teams to be better at delivering their job that's how critical the qa functionality is yeah and i think you've kind of mentioned there that a lot of kind of people are using the same qa processes that they did maybe 10 years ago is there still any kind of common mistakes that you notice contact centers are still making that perhaps they were making 10, 15 years ago? I think the biggest mistakes, again, are still viewing the QA process as punitive, that it's purely compliance-driven activity, that maybe it's a way of catching people doing the wrong things, that it's a business prevention unit, it, rather than seeing what is possible and seeing that QA is a rich seam of valuable data, actionable insight that's going to enhance the experience of people in your contact center right now and therefore enable them to deliver a great experience for your customers. I think this kind of view that QA is maybe overlooked on occasion would be a mistake if you don't regularly canvas if you're a senior leader and you haven't canvassed and sat down with QA to ask them what they're hearing to ask them how people could get better we're all fixated with data it absolutely has its place but if you're more often than not if you're talking to QA experts sometimes it's going to be the stories and the anecdotal information that is shared that really really resonates so if you're like I say, if you're not sitting down with your teams and really picking their brains about what good looks like, what needs to be improved, there's a huge area there that is underutilized that could make a significant difference. And then I think the other thing that I would say is this places that absolutely get it, that I would say are really, really progressive, are ones where the relationship between operations and QA is is a really, really positive one where they're able to challenge, but they feel like they're working together. If there's any conflict at all, it's never going to be as effective as, as it can be. And no one, no one benefits. But where operations and QA are working together and they have regular routines, regular agreed communication, a clear escalation process, and they calibrate together they approach everything together and each respects and values the other, then you know these are places that are absolutely award-winning, delivering great experiences for their customers and having energized teams, both in QA and in ops. Yeah, I think this interesting kind of point there between the kind of connection between QA and the operation teams, because... We all know the nature of call centers and how there's constant firefighting going on. And when that happens, QA can be quality monitoring sessions can be the first thing to kind of be pushed to one side. 
So having those regular routines and schedule times in uh, place is very important, I think. And in terms of just generally kind of going back to the scorecard, is there any mistakes that you still see with businesses creating scorecard? Maybe one that comes to my mind is not including an NA option, uh, not a political not applicable sorry <laughs> on the uh it's a difficult word yeah. on the um on the scorecards is that kind of a problem that you see yeah absolutely and it can make a huge difference to the to the score i think if again we've kind of touched on some of the real challenges that people face is does the scorecard match the values and the perception externally of the company or if there are odds with each other you're only heading towards conflict. Another would just be to look at the number of line items you have. One of the questions we get asked more than any other is what's the right number of line items or how should the scorecard be structured by channel and all of these different things. And often it needs people to take a step back. So if your interaction is relatively transactional, quite a short timed transaction, whether it's call or chat. If you have an overly onerous, long-winded scorecard, the negative impact of that is widespread in that it undermines QA, the credibility of QA. It, it provides unnecessary work. So I would just you know take that wider view of your scorecard. When was it last reviewed? How is, you know, you've mentioned there counting non-applicable as a kind of positive outcome is a common error. And I think one of the key ones, though, is looking, does the scorecard allow you to reflect holistically what the interaction was like for the customer? Because too often you can have an interaction that scored really positively on every single line item But you're left with this nagging sense if you've listened to it that that wasn't a great interaction for the for the customer. If you're in that position and you you let the interaction go and you've scored it and you don't have the ability to reflect that, okay, the reverse of that can also be true. It hasn't scored highly. However, this was a really positive interaction for the customer where they got the right outcome. So one of the things that we'll see is that people don't have the ability to reflect that somewhere. And it can be as simple as just asking the question at the end and then allowing, whether it's someone in QA or a team leader who is scoring an interaction to say, this was a positive overall experience for the customer. There are some learning areas that we need to go through and there's some areas that you've done and areas that you haven't. However, overall, great experience. And too often, scorecards miss that Mm, i think that's a particularly uh, poignant point to end on there kind of taking a step back away just from the over analysis of it almost and just asking yourself uh was the customer happy and was it just a generally positive overall interaction one last thing for our listeners martin is there anywhere that they can follow up with you to hear more yeah by all means contact you can contact me a BPA quality or on LinkedIn, always happy to to discuss QA. And uh, you've got your very own podcast as well, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. It's not as uh, not as polished as um, as yours, but yeah, by all means, they can um, contact me on there as well.
That's all for this episode. Thank you to Martin Teasdale for joining us today. His podcast, Get Out of Rap, which we highly recommend, is available on Apple Podcasts, so make sure that you give it a good listen. This episode of the Contact Centre podcast is sponsored by Genesis. Genesis is the global leader in omni-channel customer experience and contact centre solutions. More than 11,000 companies in over 100 countries trust the Genesis customer experience platform to help them connect effortlessly with consumers across any channel, voice, text, web chat, and social. If you would like to see a demonstration of the Genesis Pure Cloud contact center platform, visit callcenterhelper.com forward slash demo. Next week on the Contact Center podcast, we'll be looking at the topic of contact center coaching with Nick Drake Knight, a well-respected customer service writer and personality. The Contact Center podcast is produced by Call Center Helper, the leading contact center magazine. You can subscribe to our podcasts or give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also access our entire range of podcasts through the Call Center Helper website by visiting callcenterhelper.com forward slash podcasts.